we took on a multi-prong, you know, yeah. like a multi-faceted yeah. um, mission here. Huge undertaking. Can hear you. Can Perfect. You hear me? Yes, loud and good, clear. Good. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I am doing well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for donating your time and talking to me. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. I'm honored no to problem. speak with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Just to kind of start off, if you wanted to just introduce yourself and tell us who you are and, and what you do, which is a million things. I, I wrote them all down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I am Mandisa Thomas, and I am the founder and president of Black Nonbelievers Incorporated. Uh, we are headquartered in the Atlanta, Georgia area. Uh, I am a New York City native originally. Oh, wow. I've been in the Atlanta area for more than half my life. And um uh, the work I do is um, I my organization provides support and community for Black folks and allies who are either fully atheist, agnostic, humanist, et cetera. And also, we are a resource for people who are questioning their religious beliefs in favor of leaving. We also advocate for uh, more representation and amplifying the voices of the Black non-religious demographic especially in the face of a highly religious Black community. Yes. And so we, and we also engage in just a number of activities that range from social um, to service and definitely advocacy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And what was, do you remember kind of the defining moment where you realized an organization like that needed to exist or there was a need for it? Yes. So it came at the end of 2010. When I re-identified as an atheist, my background was pretty secular. Mm -hmm. Um, But over the years, you know, I resolved myself to being spiritual, but not religious. And as I tried to connect with more people, Black folks in particular, I found that there was a larger secular community in the Atlanta area. However, when I spoke with a few Black atheists online, they expressed their reservations and their experience, they, they told of their experiences when they attended meetups in person or secular, uh, non-religious or atheist meetings um, and being either the only or one of the very few people of color there, as well as some of the microaggressions and that they experienced from other attendees. And so I attended such a meetup and pretty much experienced some of these same things, you know, some of the people said, you know, I've, I've never met a black atheist before. Yeah. And so, and also, uh, you know, just this weird idea that, um, I wanted to be connected to the only other black person that was there, even though we were engaging in some really good conversation. I mean, it turns out that we ended up having conversations about what it is like to be black and atheist. And also the other person was gay. And so it was a defense about that, you know, recognize that there was, you know, that, that, Oh, they said, we all go through the same things, you know, it, we're, we all have it hard. And so being in Atlanta, which is a predominantly black city a very well populated black city, which is still very, very religious in nature. You have some of your, famous mega churches here with some of your famous mega pastors. Um, 
you know, at the end of that meetup, I um, spoke with the other Black person there and I just said, there has to be more of us out here. Yeah, absolutely. Or perhaps they've ex- had these same experiences in these spaces where <clears throat> they were either tokenized or ignored um, and they didn't feel comfortable enough to come back because there were people who didn't directly relate to their experiences. As And also the local, you know, the, the area, yeah, they're very welcoming people, you know, ended up having a great time there. But um, when it comes to certain questions that are asked, especially as it pertains to Black communities, as, and again, as well as the lack of representation, mm-hmm. um, it became needed, it became necessary to establish an organization or a net, local network to try to bring more of us out. Right. And right. also the ability to speak to issues that directly pertain to us, um, that involve areas and matters of, you know, racial justice, mm-hmm. um, things that people might have missed about their churches, but that we could not recreate, but certainly provide an alternative for and help reach more, you know, and, and help engage in more Black spaces as well. So, because that didn't seem to be a priority for the other, the other groups and organizations. So, you know, we, we took on a multi-prong, you know, yeah. like a multifaceted yeah. um, mission here. Huge undertaking. Yes, yes. And uh, that was really where we got started. Um, and when we had our first meeting and there were about 14 to 15 people in attendance, we knew that we were on the right track. Yeah. And that there were people who were looking for this. Yes. Um, for folks who directly identified with the struggles. And we also wanted to work with the other local groups as well. So it wasn't that we were trying to separate ourselves in any way, right? but to help build up that demographic in order to, for us to start collaborating and working together, as well as putting on our own independent events and, and, and um, start advocating independently as a result and as, as, you know, as a demographic. So yeah, um, that is uh, where it really became a need, especially for Black non-religious voices to speak to issues that directly impact Black communities as well, as well as, um, you know, help to, I guess, you know, address the issues of diversity and equity and inclusion in secular spaces. Absolutely. It sounds like it's, it sounds very necessary, obviously very important, but it also sounds like that gap was just there for so long, that, that gap to, of inclusivity. Do you find that uh, people of color coming out as atheist or non-religious or secular, do you find that they face different um, fears, worries, obstacles, judgment than Caucasian people or people of any other race coming out as atheist? Yes, we do. And let me say that for many of us, a lot of our struggles are very similar, right? Mm-hmm. You know, as when we, when we de, you know, when we deconvert or, you know, we, you know, we, we, um, you know, we, we are trying to unlearn that indoctrination of deconstructing, you know, our religious beliefs. There are all, there are definitely challenges that are very, very similar, if not in, in many instances, the same. The extra added layer for people of color and this is um, this is documented in a Black non-religious Americans report that we just released with American Atheists, is that Black non-religious people in America tend to have higher rates of concealment because of the very high religiosity in Black communities. Mm-hmm. And part of the problem is that 
religion is often associated with the Black identity so much that if you separate that, it's like you're rejecting your Black identity. It's like wow. you're rejecting the history of you know, Black people in this country, which uh, the history shows that there have always been humanists, atheists, and freethinkers in Black communities, even if we aren't in larger numbers. Mm-hmm. But the, the, there is so much of a tie into the church as an institution in Black communities where they are seen to be representative of all of us. And religion is so tied into the politics and the culture of Black communities that it's almost impossible to separate. They're almost seen as inseparable. And we see this in um, Senator Raphael Warnock, who is the Reverend Raphael Warnock as well. And so, of course, that was, and, and we give credit for him being a progressive Senator, uh, he certainly is, is not a fundamental um, reverend. However, the fact that he was able to run on that platform or that he, he you know, that, that says a lot for what appeals to Black communities. And, you know, we look at the history of church as well. However, uh, be, that being said, <laughs> um, when it comes to letting go of the God concept and, um, and what it means to be black in this country and the black identity, as well as black in black culture, it's so tied in that again, it seems as being inseparable. And with the, you know, with the historical um, influence of religion in black communities, it's much much harder to to deconstruct and to even come out of religion because of the nature of how the church really became a, a powerful institution, a polarizing institution. So we are dealing with a number of factors here. Yes, sounds like um, yeah. Some that deal with, and you know, we cannot talk about the church and not discuss racial justice, economic yes. justice, and how it has played a part. And so those are often difficult conversations to have. And, um, you know, it, we, we're seeing some progress, but yeah, we have... When, when we see the, the over-representation of religion in Black communities in particular, um, we, we know that this, there is a, definitely we have a harder road to climb, especially with our still, the still lower representation of openly identified atheists. Mm-hmm. Wow, and especially in the South, that it adds an extra layer to the, the religion and the race because in the North, you don't necessarily, I spent like 13 years in Chicago, but I was raised in Arkansas. Um, I never really heard much about church when I was living in the North, you know, they were there. I even went to a couple of them and, uh, in the South, everything is God-based. Everything is faith-based. And I can only imagine how that amplifies when you start to talk about black churches and black people. Yes, you cannot escape the influence of the church in any city you go to. Mm-hmm. And the same is that that is definitely true for areas like Chicago. Yeah. Um, certainly New York, where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly more people are more tend to be more liberal and progressive, but they still regularly attend church. There is a church on almost every corner yep. in black communities, and often they are in areas that are that that tend to be economically impacted negatively. 
and have um, you know less access to other resources. So yes, you can never ever escape the church as it's more pronounced in the South, but even in Northern cities, your cities on the West Coast, any, any, any of your liberal cities, you are going to find an overabundance of religious institutions in Black communities. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then you think about some of the top you know, Ivy League universities in this country that are located in the North, and they always have a Catholicism or Baptist or some kind of Christian undertone or degree uh, segue mm-hmm. that you can take. And so, yeah, that, that absolutely makes sense. Um, one of the things I was curious about was since joining the atheism space, I've noticed that a lot of, a, a lot of the, the tone is you know, welcoming, inviting, bringing people into the fold. I don't want to say proselytizing, almost like, the, mm-hmm. uh, but still our own version of proselytizing. But I, I was curious if you had to name a few, what are ways in that space where racism exists that isn't the standard? You know, I feel like we all know the standard racism, you know, like words you don't say to people, things like that. But what are the subtle, nuanced ways that racism appears in the atheism space? Yeah, so I just did a talk on um, at the American Atheist Convention about how to address white supremacy in the movement, right? So um, in many ways, I remember some years ago, um, I was doing a talk in uh, Toledo, Ohio, and the talk was on how the secular community could learn from the hospitality industry. And during the Q&A, there was a white woman who asked, uh, what was our organization going to do about black on black on black crime? Because in cities like Chicago, where crime is rampant, you know, she was wondering if our organization was going to do something about that. So first, I mean, it was, the question was unrelated to the topic at hand. Yeah. And also, um, how presumptuous was it that as an organization, we were supposed to do something that is in the hands of law enforcement, right. as well as requires um you know, a, a like civics lessons on, you know, how our communities are impacted historically. And this, like, it was just, so, it really was racist in nature. Yeah, yeah. So we've had people ask us ridiculous questions of that nature. Um, and these are people who often mean well, but, and also, ex- they also expect that as people of color, that we have all of the answers for to and that we speak for all black people um and that um you know one of our organizers in the louisville area said that she was asked at a predominantly white meetup why do black people say the n-word and it's like well why why would you charge why would you charge her with that question so there are definitely notions about black folks who that that many in some inexperience and just some privileged and just some who are just being jerks, um, you know, ask of people of color that uh, are very, very, that, that are just outright very racist. Mm-hmm. And, um, and these are things that they make, they, they don't even realize that they're doing. They're, they're well-meaning people, but their mannerisms are just, you know, especially if they've never seen a person of color at their events before, Sometimes, you know, in their in their attempt to be more welcoming, um, I remember at a conference or at a convention in 2019, um, I was approached by a random white white woman 
who um, asked who I was. She thought I was an attendee and my badge clearly said I was a speaker. So there tends to be an undermining at times of, you know, if we aren't immediately recognize that somehow we may just be a random attendee. And it's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a speaker here, you know, I'm in your program. Uh, certainly I should be treated with just as much as, uh, just as much respect as the other person. So, you know, uh, or as the, as the other speakers. So it was, it was, and then she, and then it was a comment made of, Oh, well, I guess I, you know, I, 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 I guess I'm an ally because I'm a member of the local NAACP. And it was like, wow. Um, yeah, it's very much statements like that from, you know, people who will say things, um, you know, they'll, they'll say things like Black Lives Matter. They'll, they'll say the things that sound good. But when it comes to engaging people of color, they'll ask the most rude and disrespectful questions. Um, and and out in the public too. Yeah. So yeah, we, those are some, you know, very, very, you know, those are some, you know, even if it wasn't implicitly racist, there were some, there are quite a few things that we have experienced. Yeah. <laughs> I've experienced over the years. Yeah. That's um, in this movement and that's wild. Yeah. That's wild. Basically saying like, I'm friends with black people. So I just want to ask you these rude questions. Like I don't eat money. So I have the right to ask you these questions. And that the wildest part is in all of the interviews I've done with any atheist, agnostic, seculars, you know, people who have studied people, never once have I thought to ask them about crime. So why would they ask you about crime? Mm -hmm. I would never ask somebody, what are you going to do about the crime in your city though? What's going on there? Even though it has nothing to do with what we've been talking about. That's why this undue burden, basically, for people of color to answer for all people of color when that doesn't even make sense. Why? Like, that's Mm -hmm. not even what you're there to talk about. Wild. Now, have you found that, you know, there's the there's the atheism and secularism space. Then there's the uh, racial kind of separation there with Caucasian and, and people of color. And then would you say that there's also an entirely separate um, se- segregation there for being a woman too, like within the non-believers of color? Well, so there are a number of organizations in the community and they have very specific focuses. Mm-hmm. So it's not that they're segre- that we are segregating, but we are able to effectively concentrate on um, different various demographics. So um, there are some atheist women's groups because, you know, and, and to discuss how they have to deal with some of the atheist men who have been just as bad as some of the believers in the movement or, or believers. And so um, there are certain spaces for black atheist women as well, or other women of color. Um, we as an organization co-produced the women of color beyond belief conference now that features all speakers of women, women of color speakers um, who don't necessarily have the opportunity to be on a broader stage than other. And, and we also like to activate up and coming activists and, and organizers and, and content creators. So that is our space to do that mm-hmm. when the majority of the community, which again, tends to be very welcome, does try to be welcoming. However, for, but for various reasons, they, you know, they, they, the diversity may not necessarily be represented well, right. and it depends on where they are. And part of that 
which is something that we've talked about over the years about how they can increase or how they can better improve on those efforts um, that has, has kind of fallen <laughs> to the wayside yeah. a bit. Yeah. So, um, yes, yeah, so there, there are probably a lot of breakdowns of certain groups because there are, you know, in an attempt for us to all try to come together, sometimes there are some people who, uh, who there are some white people who come into black spaces or predominantly black spaces and, and think that they can do the same things in other, in the, in different groups or, or that, that they've done in different groups. And, and our spaces are, so we, we are very guarded because of, you know, the way so many people have to be mindful of how, you know, they engage right. and some of the subject matter, um, you know, sometimes we have to be very careful with that. And, right. um, you know, we, we, we certainly want to help as many people as possible, but we also want to make sure that, you know, people who are in the space are truly wanting to learn and support right. rather than just be a part of a space and be a jerk in some way, yeah. because there are people who are suffering from, you know, from trauma as a result of leaving their religious belief. And they are still dealing with many challenges. And then the conversations at times is different. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's, it's very different. The perspectives like on race, the perspectives on women that come from the people who live them and experience them directly are going to be different than those who may just be observing. Right. So, um, you know, these spaces at times are needed so that, you know, we can come together as well on a larger scale. Right. I do also think it's interesting that there's this underlying implication and it might not even be as underlying. It might just be kind of open implication that if there is a, um, if there is a disconnect between Caucasian non-believers and people of color who are non-believers, it is now your burden to smooth that over and to make them feel comfortable. I noticed that while you were telling me that, yes, it it becomes on you, even though we play the card of, Oh, I didn't know. I was just ignorant. It then becomes your job to smooth that over and, and be the safe ones and communicate in a safe way and an inclusive way, which is right. Yeah. we're, We're the ones who have to abide by the respectability politics. If we get too angry, then, you know, we're going to offend people. And, um, yeah, disrupt the status quo, especially when, um, when there are important topics that, you know, that impact us that come up, you know, we get some pushback about what does this have to do with atheism and humanism when it's like, well, the, all of these, all of these, um, all of these matters intersect. Right. So, um, yeah, there, there is definitely some discomfort there on their part that we are expected to fix, even though we are in a minority right? and we are the ones who have dealt with, you know, a a severe imbalance in being able to find and develop those resources. Right. Right. They come into your space and you're expected to be the hostess as though Mm -hmm. you invited them. Um, for you personally, how did you find yourself so heavily involved in secularism and humanism? How did that come about in your life and become such a priority to you? It was actually unintentional. Um, when we started the local, we started Black Nonbelievers as Black Nonbelievers of Atlanta. It was only intended to be um, local because there were other organizations and entities that were that existed. And we were, um, I, I you know, I guess it's my nature as a person, you know, I'm, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, and I'm very assertive and uh, in, the, in, the, in how I handle myself. 
And so it just worked out that um, in my engagement in the community, you know, there's always opportunities to volunteer and to get involved, which is, which is needed. And mm-hmm. I didn't realize how much it was needed until we got started. So, um, and in connecting with the larger community, I remember attending my first American Atheist Convention in 2011 um, when we got started because we wanted to let people know that we were here. We wanted to connect with other atheists. We wanted to get to know the organizations who we were, you know, we would potentially be potentially be working with. And so in doing that and um, really expanding our networking and engaging in the community, and I've met so many wonderful people as a result, it just so happened that um, there were a, a few initiatives that started coming around. Uh, we had people contacting us for interviews and interviews where we were filmed, um, other, other media opportunities. And it just became this, it just really became this thing where I wasn't expecting it to become my life, but it did. Yeah. And I realized that my outspoken nature, my unapologetic nature just made this a natural fit for me. And uh, because there are, there are so many others who either cannot be out with their identities or they don't think that they are, you know, assertive enough to be in leadership. So it just kind of happened. You know, it was a, it was a, it was a steady progression, um, continuing to connect with people, continuing to, and then eventually serving on boards of other organizations. And so it just really became, and then lending my, um, you know, my, my skill as an organizer, as a manager, which really helped with the development of Black nonbelievers and just getting out and, um, you know, connecting with other entities. It just really, really helped us. It really, really helped us a lot. So um, I, like I said, it just, it kind of fell in. (laughs) It just kind of fell into it. Uh, It wasn't something that I, I wasn't, I didn't say I wouldn't take it seriously at first because I did. I really wanted to get out and meet new people. But as far as the transition into leadership, there were just a few things that were happening at that time that, and opportunities that came up that just kind of catapulted that. And um, I can say, I don't regret it because um, it, it really has made a difference in a lot of people's lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. It seems like from what I, I read up on you, it seems like it's just kind of blown up into like this tree with all these different branches going all these different directions. But at the end of the day, it all leads back to your initial start of your organization and how it just kind of exploded, which mm-hmm. is just proof out there that people wanted this and people needed this. They just didn't have it. And there was that need for it. And that, that gap, I guess, in the inclusivity, that's very mm-hmm. interesting. And before that, what were, were you involved in politics or law at all? Or were, did you do something entirely different before you got so heavily involved? Not at all. I was the event services manager at the Centers for Disease Controls Conference Center at their headquarters campus down here in Atlanta, right next to Emory University. Mm-hmm. Um, before that, no, I wasn't really involved in politics like that. I mean, of course, my family and I are active, you know, voters, but right. like as far as um, in the forefront of an organization, no, I mean, I was just, you know, I was, I was just an everyday working person, yeah. you know, with a family, but who realized that this was an area of my life that became important to me. Absolutely. And over the years, as I 
really examined my, um, my perspective. And also thinking about, you know, how harmful religion has been to a number of people. It just became this, it just really became important to me that um, I become involved in this community. And when I met others, because I, I remember hearing, you know, I remember getting pushback for starting to eventually express my dissent, openly express my dissent with religion and the concept of God. Um, I just really, um, it, it just became that, that important to me. And, I, and it helped me, let me realize that, um, you know, when you have that, when you have that skill to organize as well as to, um, you know, to potentially work with a team of people, even if it's because Black non-believers is a result of building from the ground up, um, especially here in Atlanta. There was no organization like it um, in the Atlanta area, but in even nationwide, there were other groups that were based around discussions, um, you know, speakers and, and, what, and, and what have you. But as far as building a very supportive community around, especially around things that Black people do, you know, and that right, every, right. everyday people do. Yeah. Um, that was certainly lacking. Um, and so there was a void that we knew we were filling. We just didn't know how much. Right. Right. Or like how much people would embrace it and demand right. more. You know, the great thing about starting something that's popular is you've started something that's popular. The only downside is now you have to keep producing exactly. and being right. present. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were not raised religious. If I know not entirely correct, but your extended family was religious. That is correct. My, my father's mother, my paternal grandmother, very, very religious and belonged to an an apostolic church. You know, it's similar to a Pentecostal, very evangelical, you know, a lot of holy rollers. Yeah. And that side of the family is, you know, they're, they're, you know, all were born and raised in New York. So there is, you know, there isn't like a super duper fundamentalism, but there is still a, a, a deep seated belief in, you know, in God and, 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 the, and religion and act and activity in the church. Now, my mother's side of the family, not as much there. I have some Christian family members. I have Muslim family members and I also some atheist family members, atheists and agnostics. So for me, it was, um, you know, I, I remember one of my earlier, my, one of my earliest secular influences was my my maternal grandmother, um, who was a, was very festive, big on celebrating holidays, mm-hmm. but it was there was never there was never any prayer. You didn't have to, you know, you didn't have to go to church on Easter Sunday. It was all about the candy, the Easter bunny, and the Easter eggs. So I realized early on that you could be festive. You know, you could. Oh, yeah do good things without believing in a God or subscribing to any religious traditions. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, was there ever a time in your life where you felt the need to come out and reject religion or was it pretty much understood just because you weren't raised religious and you never really partook in religion that you just kind of continued on in that way? No, I had to, I had to come out. (laughs) I had to, uh, I had one of my, one of my mentors who was my, one of my former teachers, um, very, very big on like, very, like social justice, racial justice. But when it came to her belief, she was, she held, she holds that very close. And so for her to see me actually ex- openly express my, my sentiments about Christianity and rejecting the concept of God, it scared her so much that she felt like she had to save me. 
And so I thought, well, yeah, there's no need for to save me at all. And so I had some acquaintances who everything was, everything was couched in religious language and the expectation that we, we all were. And so, and I remember even at my job and my, my former job, cause I resigned from there in 2018. Now we're at a federal, federal facility and people are praying before certain events. And it's like, Whoa, wait a minute. Um, what are we doing here? And it was just such <laughs> first amendment, anybody. So, right. Yeah. And it's like, so I had to make my identity known not simply because I wanted people to just stop everything, but the Christians did not have the right to put their stuff up. And we had Hindus working with us. We had Muslims working with us and, and there were atheists among us too. So it's like, you know, that, you know, that that's, that's something that needed to stop. So um, it was important that people understood that everyone did not subscribe to religion or the, or the concept of God in the same way. And that, and especially at professional places like work, right? you know, it just, it did not belong there. And so I think it helped to make people more mindful of how, you know, of how to engage and just basically keep your religion to yourself, especially at work. Yeah. Yeah. And that's again, another instance in which the person or the group overpowering everyone else is not the ones having to then deal with the cleanup. It's the people that are being overpowered or being outnumbered that have to bear the burden of, hey, we're here. Why are you doing these things that don't include any of us or we don't subscribe to? Why are you making the rules and and the way we behave here at work, a professional setting, so seem like so what's the word I'm looking for like pointed I guess towards their beliefs and when you're a believer you you think and I I remember this from back when I was a religious person you think that what you are doing is showing people light and happiness and grace but not everybody wants that light and that happiness and grace right I, I the way that I explain it to people is I'm like I I totally understand that you think putting up your religious paraphernalia everywhere is just pleasant and it's loving and the whole message is to love everyone. But how would you react if you moved somewhere where the entire building was covered in um, something pertaining to Muslim belief or Mm -hmm. Judaism? Suddenly Mm -hmm. you would feel alienated and you would feel targeted and you would feel... And so, and people seem to kind of grasp that. And, and they're like, well, I'm not racist. I don't have a problem with Muslim people. And I'm like, exactly. But you still kind of pause when you consider living mm-hmm. in a place or working in a place where you are expected to do the same prayer or be at the same, you know, religious conventions and, and events that they have, you still would have an issue with it, even if you don't consider yourself a racist person. Absolutely. So there, it goes back to that whole undue burden thing, which is very interesting. And, and I've also found that I feel like, especially in a country like the United States, which ironically are one of our number one amendments is the separation of church and state. Our church is supposed to be able to run everything and make decisions for everyone and know what's best for everyone without having to ask when we are also a melting pot that includes, right? right? So it's like, you have to pick one, you have to pick one. You're either going to say there's a separation of church and state, or you're going to admit that there's not one. And you're either going to say that we're a melting pot, or you're going to admit that you wish we weren't. And you wish everyone would subscribe to the same lifestyle and belief. 
Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's just interesting that there's this pattern in all of your examples where even though you were the um, unincluded group or the underrepresented group, you still had to bear the burden of including uh-huh. yourself and reminding people yes, to include and, you. And, and constantly fighting for ourselves as well, which becomes so daunting and it is exhausting. It, yeah. And it's, and it's that, you know, we, we have to constantly stand up and defend ourselves in a, in a country that is supposed to be secular, right? The, the, the number, you know, there's a, the, the, the number of religious nuns are rising, but there is still this religious faction, right? that we still have to battle against. Right. And so it's right. like, man. <laughs> and and the then there's the issue of if you fight too hard, there are stereotypes held against you then. Like I have yep. never once in my life heard the term angry white woman. Right. I've never right. heard it. I've never mm-hmm. heard that. But I feel like if you were to put your foot down one too many times, you would have that stereotype of the angry black woman, which is unfair. It's racist. And it undermines what you're trying to accomplish by representing yourself. And I know there are a lot of white women who are upset with the term Karen, right? You know, the one who, (laughs) uh, or Becky, the one who, who complain about those who they deem the angry black woman, or, you know, the folks who they may complain about and call on unnecessarily or even unceremoniously. Right. And when we've had to deal with these, you know, with these stigmas and these respectability politics and, um, and when we fight against that, all of a sudden now we're the bad guys. Right. So yeah, it's like, maybe at some point, if you don't like that label, try Think about what that feels for us. (laughs) Yeah. um, I'm sorry. You don't like when we call you out on your behavior. (laughs) Right. I don't know what else you want me to do. Right. Um, Do you find that your, um, your, what's the word, your determination towards um, atheism and humanism um, and representation, do you find that that changed at all when you became a mother or is it about the same or were there aspects that changed? in terms of being a mom? Well, I had my children before I got into the movement and um, I had already, there were other, already other factors in my life that led me to um, to have a more progressive outlook and, and progressive um, manner of raising my children. I think for me, it made me more determined because I don't want to see my, I don't want to see them go through this. Right. And hopefully whatever I do as an, 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 a leader or as an activist will help them to, because I had a very, I, when I, I had a, I, I learned very early on about what, you know, how, like I said, how black communities were impacted. And so I had a social awareness, you know, that to me as a, as a child, um, I would only hope that what I stand for um, as an individual, but also as an organization leader, that it shows my, it, it sets an example for my children uh, to stand up for whatever they feel is right and whatever they, whatever they think is going to help the world in, in general or, you know, just people who are at a disadvantage. So it may, it, it really made me more determined to just um, continue, you know, continuously at least be that guide for them. And um, if that, like I said, if that helps them along the way, then then great. Um, It only really just um, fueled it more. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, now I read somewhere that you won the 2020 um, Harvard Humanist of the Year, I believe, award. Yeah, I was a co-recipient of the 2020 Harvard Humanist of the Year award. Um, I was also the recipient of the 2022 Irving and Annabelle Wolfson Award, which is presented by the Unitarian Universalist Church of Worcester, Massachusetts. Wow. wow. And for somebody who may not be familiar with humanism, how would you describe being a humanist and how does that differ and also relate to atheism and secularism? Right. So humanism is a life philosophy that um, basically imparts doing good for the world and doing good for, you know, not just mankind, but, um, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, for the planet, uh, without the notion that you absolutely have to believe in a God. Mm -hmm. Um, atheism is just the, the identity portion or the, the lack of, or the rejection of those beliefs in God. Humanism, sort of moves it forward. It's like now not, not every atheist is a humanist, um, but most humanists tend to be atheists. And um, that is because um, when you leave those religious beliefs behind, um, you still want to, you still can show how good of a person you are without, you know, religious dogma, without, and and based on an evidence-based principles, you know, um, principles that are, and, and, um, you know, and, and life, um, life lessons that have been proven to work. So we always want to follow, you know, we always want to follow the evidence. We want to follow, you know, the verification and you don't need a God to do that. And, um, so yeah, it's, it's the, it's the next step in the evolution, if you will, or it should be, um, because there are some humanists who could care less about racial justice. In fact, they, um, you know, some of them have fought against, you know, they, they've been quite, That's so odd. they've been quite stubborn. Yeah. It's, that, uh, how can you call yourself a humanist and also fight against right. all humans enjoying the same privileges and lifestyles and opportunities? That's, I would, I'm almost curious to ask one of them how that works because yeah. that, that flies right over my head. Um, has there ever been a time in your life where you thought for a moment or longer, like, oh shit, maybe there is a God. <laughs> maybe I have been wrong this whole time. Ever, ever been worried about it? I mean, I think for all of us, when we have crisis points in our lives, yeah. um, we certainly are just like, man, I mean, I honestly sometimes wish there was because I'm like, if it's, if it's going to be that simple, then great. You know, <laughs> I mean, that would be, that would be perfect. Right. If there was a being we could call on and all of a sudden, like a, you know, like the wave of a magic wand then we can, you know, just everything could just, you know, go away, but that's not how the world works. Right. And also for people who say, well, God doesn't work like that. Well, there are, there are plenty of atrocities that have taken place, um, in, you know, in the course of, you know, the, of being on this planet. And there are certain things that if there was a God could, could, and should have been prevented. Yes. But, um, you know, it, if you, if you subscribe to that, um, then, and especially if what happened was no fault of the individual, then how can you justify belief in a God in a benevolent God? Um, and then say, well, he works in mysterious ways. That's actually, that's very cruel and abusive. Yeah. So yeah, sure. There are times where, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, we kind of all at one point have, but it's like, 
Yeah, no, that's just kind of not how the world works. And right. just because we're just because we're non-believers, it doesn't mean that we don't experience hard times. Right. It also doesn't mean that we don't have other coping mechanisms or ways to try to solve our problems. Mm-hmm. And many believers don't realize that we usually try to do it the same way, but or we 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 impart a lot of similar methods, but mm-hmm. it's just that you go one step further and attribute it to a God. And and we don't. So right. it, that part is always very interesting, but, um, but yeah, I mean, sure. Sometimes, uh, I think, I think many of us have been there. I, I can't claim to speak for everyone, but yeah, I think, and there's nothing wrong with that. Doesn't mean, Oh, see you turn back to God. No, no, no. So there's, there's, there's times of uncertainty. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with saying, I don't know. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I'm much more likely to trust somebody who says they don't know than to trust somebody who has all the answers. But I try to tell people, you know, I try to describe it as I, when there is turbulence on a plane, I still pray, (laughs) but that's, (laughs) you know, I still, I'm still gripping that seat, like praying, like begging, hoping hopefully, you know, the pilots can navigate all of their education and skill. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I do think it's interesting how much is attributed to God, um, that, I is I in my opinion is not necessary. Um, for example, I had a friend who bought a house recently, and they were like, "Yes, God gave us this home." And I remember saying to them, "I said, you know, you got on Zillow, you looked it up, you typed in the radius and the budget that you had and the area that you wanted to live in. You got in your car, you drove, you toured the house, you negotiated the price. How can right, you not you did say, all the work? Right, right. Like I was like, I'm how confused. can you attribute that to a God? Right. And then, you know, that's when the whole argument goes, well, God gave me the, you know, money and the, and so you could just, it's a whole cyclical thing. Um, if there were any misconceptions about n- black non-believers that you wanted to just kind of cover, throw out there and people might be surprised to find out, what would you say in terms of stereotypes, common misconceptions, things like that. I mean, many of us are just like, our organization does not promote like separation on its face. You know, we are, we exist to help amplify the voices of the still unheard and those that are still not represented as well as we should, as we should be. And um, I think for many of us, um, you know, we're just trying to live like everyone else um, and that we are a part of a, you know, we are just as much of a welcoming community and, uh, you know, so whatever it is that, you know, we, and we, we impart some of the same principles as, um, you know, as, as other organizations, you know, many of our, our missions do align, but we do want to make sure that we are representing still a, a very underrepresented demographic. And so that's, yeah. That's basically what we're about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if you had to give any advice to somebody, a uh, very, let's say like a person of color who might be considering leaving their religion or might be considering they don't necessarily subscribe to the way they were raised. What would you say to them in terms of coming out or trying to make that decision for themselves? Um, I would say first it is, it is okay to do, make that decision. It is, and come to it at your own pace. You don't have to rush it. Um, if, uh, you want to make sure, you know, please, you know, make sure that your decisions are informed, um, and, and try not to do it at the behest of anyone else, whether it's pressure from your family or even pressure from, um, uh, from, from others in our, even our own community. 
And that once you make that decision, um, please know that it is it is liberating. It is very freeing and um, uh, and there's support for you. You know, you don't have to go through this alone. You're not the only one going through it. And that's the that's the main thing we always get across is that, you know, you, you aren't alone. There are definitely more of us out here, even if it doesn't seem like it. So um, we don't all agree on everything, but uh, it is uh, it 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 is a worthwhile process. And uh, it's good to connect with others so that you know that you there are there are others out here that who will support you. Yeah, absolutely. And where can we, uh, for you in particular, where can we find more of your content? Where can we find, do you have a calendar somewhere where your events are posted? Where can we find more of just your, your work and your, your activism? Um, so definitely first and foremost, uh, visit our website at blacknonbelievers.org. Uh, you can find our affiliates on the website. Um, and you can tap into those events, if, especially if you are local to those areas. And even if you aren't, uh, we do we do virtual events as well. We post our national events too. So um, you can join any of our meetup groups to find out more. We are on um, Instagram, uh, Twitter, uh, and Facebook. And also we do have a YouTube channel where we debuted our show in the cut in January of this year. So we do, we do interviews and posts about, um, and we share information about upcoming events. So that's definitely, um, we encourage people to subscribe to our YouTube channel and uh, check out, um, you know, check out what we have coming up uh, through our website. And that's where you can connect with us. You can subscribe to our email list. And, uh, and of course, everywhere we are on social media to stay updated. Perfect. Awesome. Well, that was all the questions I had planned for you today, but I really appreciate you spending your mother's day nonetheless with us, um, no and problem. donating your time and, and your opinions and your thoughts. And I really appreciate you and the work that you're doing. And, and I hope that the rest of your mother's day is fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. I'll talk to you later. Thank you so okay. much. Bye-bye.